Hi, my name is Richard and this is my podcast State of Mind with me, Richard Sefton. You can connect with me on Twitter at Richard Sefton3. You know, it's always nice to have a hello. Uh, Let me know that you're listening to the podcast. I'm always down for that, connecting with people, because that's what this podcast is about, connecting with people, having a talk with somebody, having a talk with a stranger or a friend or anyone, just getting out there and realising that talking about mental health should not be a taboo. So sit back, get a cuppa and uh, have a listen and hopefully you'll enjoy. Today I'm joined by an artist, influencer and author. He has told me elements of his life and his struggles with his physical and mental health and I think as a person he's quite an inspiration. I wanted you all to be able to hear his story in full and so Sean Sutherland Kirby, or as some of you may know him, Uncle Frogface, welcome to my sofa and this is the first guest actually on my sofa, not virtual. How are you? I'm very well Richard, how are you? I'm alright, thank you. Um... Just to explain, we're sat in my garden in my summer house. The birds are singing outside, which you may be able to pick up. Um, and it sounds quite therapeutic. This is my therapy space, so it should feel th- therapeutic. Um, I would like to know all about who you are, where you came from, and your journey along the way. So, take me back. Um, well, I mean... I. Right now, I talk quite a lot about my mental health and and my physical health because of kind of the last 10 years or more of my life. But prior to that, um, I I really was working as uh, an actor in music theatre. I came from, you know, a council estate in North London, um, probably one of the worst schools in Enfield. Barely scraped through my GCSEs, um, but have been working kind of as a professional actor from the age of 13 onwards. Uh, and that's what I love doing, that and teaching. You know, that people say you can't do teach, but actually I started teaching when I was 18 at the same drama school that I used to go to on a Saturday. Um, I fell in love with teaching and, and helping kids and trying to shape them and form them into fully rounded human beings. What was the drama school that you went to? Oh, it was called uh, Jigsaw Arts. So it was, uh, it was. So I went to one of the branches in Enfield. They used to rent schools in and around London on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And there were, I think, there were twenty-two of them at the most. Um, so actually, when I went, um, I was in the same school as Reggae Page, who was in uh, Bridgeton, um, who actually was a very good friend of mine. Uh, he was at my wedding. Um, I was his youth theatre director for a while as well. He used to go and visit his band in when he was doing his uh, prog rock gigs and stuff. He's in a band? I he did, yeah. That. He used to have a band. I have only just started watching Bridgerton, so I wouldn't know that. <laughs> but he has caught my eye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've yet to be able to actually watch it, because I, I hear it's quite racy, and actually seeing a friend in that position, I think, would be a, a little bit too weird for me, because I knew him when he was, like, ten. Well, so far, it's not as racy as I th- was hoping it was going to be. <laughs> when you see some of the actors, it's not as racist as I thought it might be. You've known him since he was 10. How, how old is he? Oh, I've no idea. He's, I think he's about six years younger than me. See, I just assume that everyone is our age. But yes. <laughs> yeah. Just, me, just, me just so everyone are, knows, obviously, we're, we're 25. 25, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, there's two years between us, so I'm 27. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, so, what was your what was your speciality? What was your favorite? Draw, acting, singing. So, 
dance. I think definitely singing. I, I've played piano since I was four years old. So mm-hmm. um, my, my great-grandfather was a musician. My nan was a, a musician. Um, so it's kind of in the blood. Is and this the grandfather that was also in the Magic Circle? Was in the Magic Circle and was an inventor as well. So he, wow. when he was in the Magic Circle, his job was to invent the gimmicks that made tricks work. So he could make people's heads disappear and cut a carrot without cutting someone's head off with a guillotine and lots of other things. He was actually really good friends with Tommy Cooper. Um, he had a pet monkey. He was like this person I aspire to be somewhere in my head, this kind of renaissance man that did everything. And then in his inventing life, he and his father-in-law invented the first proper motorbike that had a chain gearbox and a petrol engine. Um, he was one of the first AA men. He was an Isle of Man TT flag bearer mm. uh, in the races. He used to race motorbikes and my nan would be in the side carts and would have still toe cap boots on with her feet out the back of the sidecar and put her toes on the tarmac so that he would be able to take corners faster. So oh biking is... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, that, that kind of preempts, but, you know, biking is just in, in my family's blood. Um, and, yeah. So, I, I kind of... Music for me was, was something I've always been interested in. I, I yeah, started playing piano when I was about four. Um, my nan bought me my first keyboard. Um... And then I had a, an old piano that my uncle had got from a, a pub that he was renovating because he was a builder. Um, and that stayed in our kitchen for years and years and years. And even when we moved house, that came with us as well. Um, until the soundboard at the back cracked from me playing it too hard. Uh, and it had to be dismantled, which was uh, I hated that day. Uh, but yeah, I play piano, I sing, I play guitar, drums, a bit of violin, kind of any instrument I will pick it up and have a go and I've got kind of a little bit of proficiency with but singing is my main thing so it was musical theatre that I, I really loved. Mike Oldfield um, is sat in front of me obviously. <laughs> wow. I didn't know he played the drums I knew he played I think guitar and piano. Cause yeah I mean it's, them, but... I haven't played drums for probably about 12 or 13 years <laughs> so you know in that, that period of my life where everything went basically tits up um and yeah that kind of changed a, a lot of my life but um yeah I, w- I was a working musical theater actor I, I remember being in a class once and uh we were talking about success with some of the kids and um though I was saying you know I'm a professional actor I do shows and tours and pantos and all sorts of things and, um, and they said but we don't know you you're not famous <laughs> I said well that's that's not what success is. I'm doing something that I love doing, and I'm able to pay my bills doing that. You know, I was living by myself. I was able to pay my rent, my bills, pay for my food, and I was happy doing that. And that it, for me was a good life. Mm. So, what sort of? Oh, you said musical theatre. Musical theatre was your forte. Yeah. What, what's your favourite sort of musicals? The old stuff. Seven. I, I like I like quirky musicals, so like the older quirky musicals, Little Shop Horrors is one of my favourites. Um, I've never seen that. I mean, that's blasphemy. I know one of the songs. <laughs> oh, no, I don't. No, I don't. I just know I can feed me Seymour. <laughs> that's not a song. It's, it's the name of a song, but actually it's Feed Me, Get It, but yeah. Feed Me what? Get It, so as in like Get It. but Oh, Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's Skid Row. So it's it's in in like the 
in, <laughs> in the rundown areas. I need to watch. I've never seen Rocky Horror Picture Show either. Again, one of my favourites. I, I, I think I knew that was one of your favourites. Yeah. But I can imagine you in stockings. That sounds right. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. That sounds bad. So the uh, the more horror sort of side of things. Yeah, and I, I mean, horror, again, plays a big part in my life. Um, I think writing, uh, right, because I, I now write stories, as, as you said at the beginning, I'm an author, and, and the things that I write are horror. Um, but my dad's a massive Stephen King fan, uh, so even though he and I haven't, haven't always seen eye to eye as I was growing up, um, I did steal his books and read them for very young. I was just telling someone this morning, actually, um, getting ready for a, an art collab. We were having a bit of a chat about our pasts. Uh, the first book I actually remember reading, I was 10 years old, and it was my dad's limited edition copy of Stephen King's It. Hmm. Um, and it was terrifying, but I absolutely loved it. And then I went on and read Carrie, and then uh, The Shining after that, and then just devoured all of Stephen King's work. Um, I then went on to Clive Barker and, and other authors and some that are actually really grotesque and gruesome, um, which is probably why I've got such a warped sense of humour now. Do you know, I, I think I, when I grew up, I wasn't allowed to watch films until I was the age that was on them. I was it, it, very, my parents weren't strict, but that was a very strict sort of thing. I wasn't allowed to skip my age, basically. I didn't go to my first club until I was over 18, that sort of thing. But I think the first books that I read were probably Stephen King. Couldn't tell, me, tell you which ones, but I, I, maybe mum had them. Yeah, I, I think you tend to read what your parents read when you're younger. Um, so... I mean, Roald Dahl was, <laughs> was big as well. I don't think that was my mum and dad's. Roald Dahl was massively... They were probably bought for you. Yeah, um, yeah, but I love Roald Dahl, still do. Yeah, but, um, I think most no, people Stephen are King, too. in my head. And she used to have these ones as well called If There Be Thorns or Flowers in the Attic. And they had some kind of oh, yeah. horror-y type thing to them as well, I think, if I remember right. God, that's, that's, that's dredged up... Um, past memories that I didn't <laughs> think I had anymore. It's weird, so, isn't it, how these conversations yeah. up, bring up things that you haven't thought of for years and years. Exactly. So musical theatre and horror mm -hmm. um, played a big part in your early life, would that be fair to say, that it's spilt all the way through? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think just being a, I suppose, from, from where I grew up, a flamboyantly gay man, even though I'm not particularly flamboyant um i grew up in i mean you wouldn't believe it listening to my voice but well, like i was just a gonna say really common it, area of london well isn't it strange how people can't see what other people see <laughs> <laughs> thank you richard thank you <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah now i feel like i'm sort of opposite elton john <laughs> Liberace, the better pianist. <laughs> Liberace with an Edgar Allan Poe undertone. I'll take it, I'll take it. You can use that as a sort of thing when you're booked. <laughs> the Liberace <So>. of horror. <laughs> the rocket man of the horror world. Um, so, you're in your 20s, life's all tickety-boo, ticking yeah. along fine. Yeah. Where, where, where are you going to take me to next? Um, well, I, I suppose, kind of the... the one of the most life-changing events I, I've had. Um, so it's July 14th, 2009. Um, I wake up for work in the morning, um, put on all of my protective gear, because uh, I, was, I was biking. Um, 
looked out, it was a little bit drizzly, so I, I did my jacket all the way up, put my visor down on my helmet. And um, can I just stop you quickly? When you were talking about your granddad, I think mm-hmm. you, you 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 told me something before that you didn't say about the museum or something. I don't think you said that. Just oh yes, because there's a relevance to him him being in that. Yeah. In that world. Yeah. Go on. It was in a museum. Or something. He is a British transport museum. Yeah, the yeah. motorbike that he invented. Yes, yeah. Um, Sorry to interrupt you then. I just thought that that was pertinent to it to, to, because you said that you, you were involved in biking. You, you, you had a like of biking and it wasn't just because he rode bikes, but he was quite influential. You did say that he invented it, but it's actually in the British Transport yeah. Museum. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, so go on. You put on all your protective <laughs> gear. Yeah, so I put on all of my protective gear um, and then uh, was walking to my bike and uh, it was a little bit drizzly. So everything up, visor down, you know, fully protected, waterproofs on, um, backpack on, jumped on the bike, was riding to work. At this point, I was both teaching and working in a department store in Waltham Cross called Fish Paws. And I, I can never remember in my brain, because kind of, I mean, you'll, you'll understand why, um, but I can never remember whether, whether I was going to teach or whether I was going to the department store. But I remember riding down the road, and I was doing about 60 miles an hour, maybe 65 miles an hour, and then I don't remember anything at all. Um, but what had happened is the bike that I was riding had a mechanical fault and both of the brakes locked up at the same time. So the bike stopped dead on the road Jesus. and I carried on going at the speed that the bike was going. Um, so I, the bike had dropped down handlebars, which is like, you know, like handlebar moustache, they come uh-huh. down. Both of my thumbs got caught behind the handlebars, and as I went forward, both my thumbs snapped back to my forearms, and I tore all the ligaments in both hands between my uh, thumb and forefinger. Um, I managed to get my hands in front of me as I went forward, and I landed hands first and then face first into the tarmac, and then ragdolled and just rolled for about 100 metres downhill. and they don't know if it was 10, 20 minutes later, I was found on the grass verge uh, by an off-duty police officer um, who thankfully was kind of with it enough to, to not disturb where I was laying in the grass but just kind of clicked in my face to see uh, if I was conscious and, and I, could, I remember kind of just looking up and seeing this silhouette in front of me. Um, and the next thing is, I is that all you remember? Just what about pain or, or anything? For I mean, at that point, that's all I remembered. A lot of it came back afterwards, mm. um, but that was kind of a whole trauma in itself. Yeah. Um, I didn't remember anything of the accident for about six months. Um, all I remember was yeah, this, this silhouette in front of me. Um, I remember the paramedics coming to me at the side of the road. And they went to take my helmet off and it had cracked all the way through and it literally just came off in two pieces. Um, they had to cut all of my clothes off at the side of the road to check my body, to wrap me in a, in a red blanket, put me on a gurney and put me in the back of the ambulance. Put you on a what? On a gurney. What's like that? one of those, stretcher. yeah, one of those stretcher bed things, yeah. Um, so at, at this point, my dad actually was working as an ambulance technician, which is like a paramedic that can't give injections, basically. Um, so the crew that picked me up were friends of my dad's, even though my dad and I weren't particularly on speaking terms at that point. Um, 
so by the time I got to the hospital, they'd already phoned my dad to tell him what had happened. So by the time I got there, my mum and dad and my younger brother were already there. My mum was in tears. They checked me over, um, made sure I wasn't paralysed or anything, which is not a fun test if you ever if you ever in an accident and they want to test whether your legs are working. So finger up the up the backside. Really? To see if you've got any feeling there. Yeah. Um, so he tested me, did x-rays and everything. Um, and yeah, they, they discharged me that day. No, the following day. I was there overnight. They discharged me the next day into my, to my dad's care because he was a medical professional. Mm. So he was, he would be able to look after me. Um, and yeah, I had a lot of injuries. So I kind of from top to bottom, I, I broke my nose, which was always fun. Um, mm. I, from the nape of my neck to the base of my spine, so from the neck to coccyx, I'd torn every single muscle either side of my spine. Um, I took all of the skin off of my left elbow and still have kind of a scar patch there. Obviously, both thumbs had been dislocated and the uh, the tendons had been torn and the ligaments uh, dislocated my knee and my ankle uh, and took a lot of skin off my off my left hip as well. Um, so that kind of... How, why were you discharged? That sounds pretty horrific. Yeah, I mean, it sounds m- much worse than it probably actually was because I actually only had a single broken bone and the dislocations, once they put them back in, it they just gave me crutches. I mean, we're not talking about the best hospital in North London here. How can you use crutches with no thumbs? Well, <laughs> I didn't. They literally gave me crutches and I went out an arm round my dad and my younger brother and they wow. carried me to the car. What um, were you, do you remember what you were feeling mentally at this point? Like what, what was going on in your head? What, what questions were you asking yourself, the universe? What, what so I, I, remember, <clears throat> I remember one of, the, um, one of the doctors at the hospital saying to me, very matter-of-factly, uh, you should be dead. And just, just that there wasn't a question. It was just, you should be dead. That can't be nice to hear. No, it's not. And when you're 25 and you're faced with your own mortality, I'm ageing myself there. 2009, <laughs> I was 25. Um, That's fine. But yeah, when you're faced with your own mortality at that age, when you're just enjoying life and going out, you don't really think about that kind of stuff. It really changes the way you think about absolutely everything. Mm. Um, you know, from from the smallest, what am I putting into my body? to what are my relationships with my families it 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 kind of warps everything and you people say they have a new appreciation of life i'm not sure whether it's an appreciation of life or a rekindled fear of death would you say that that most people feel that when they go through something like that or is that your well obviously that's your experience but that's that's my experience but i've spoken to other people who have been through kind of similar things and they They've said similar things. You know, some people have said, no, I, I've got this amazing <clears throat> zest for life and I want to go out and be living. And I absolutely did that as well. Mm. But it wasn't for, it wasn't solely, I should say, for the love of life. And there, there are lots of things that I've found in my life that I'm very thankful for and I really enjoy doing. But at that moment, and for a, a, a quite a while afterwards, it was the, th- the fear of death, really, that kept me going. Um, and not even for myself, because 
I think when when you think about your own death and kind of not being there, you don't really think about yourself. You think about all of the people around you. And at that point, I had... I mean, I have very good relationships with some of my family, not so good with uh, some other members of my family. But I also had a lot of friends as well, a lot of friends from theatre, a lot of friends that I worked with. Um, another thing this whole thing did was really show me who those friends were. You know, your ride and die is the one that really stay with you. Um, I went from dozens and dozens of people to probably a handful of people who I could really rely on. Um, which again kind of makes you feel isolated. Because at the time, what was your physic? What was your physical ability like? What, what? Well, for a long time afterwards, my well, I think it was about six months afterwards. Um, I was in physiotherapy like four times a week mm-hmm. um, for my spine, um, but also for my hands. Like my hands are in splints for for months, um, and for my my knee and my ankle as well. And just trying to get movement and, and motion back um, and the physiotherapy helped and I, I I never fully recovered so this is the issue that I had in that I went from being 100% to being about 10% after the accident to only ever going up to about 90% and then it just kind of stopped there my health never got any better mm. and I just at that point maybe 18 months later just wanted to get back on with life and I decided to to try a career change and do something different I did um, veterinary nursing for a year uh, found out that actually it was giving me a lot of back pain because of standing in surgery why did you decide on the change I just wanted to change everything Uh, I think doing what I did before the accident reminded me of the accident yeah okay so I just wanted to to separate myself from that and be Mm -hmm. I'm just going to try something else almost separate yourself from you exactly and I wanted I wanted to go into medicine before I kind of fell into to acting um so for me it was like well I'll just try my hand at the thing that I've always wanted to do anyway and yeah, I was just having massive back pain with it. And I was like, I can't, I can't physically cope with this anymore. Mm. And at this point, my health had gone from that plateau and had started to dip again. Mm. Um, I, I went back to teaching. I was working in um, special educational needs uh, and in pupil referral units as well, which uh, for people who don't know is a school for pupils who have been expelled from mainstream education for various reasons. And this was one in, in Walthamstow. So I was working with children who... It was secondary school children who had drug problems and alcohol problems and had been knife crimes and gunfights and all sorts. Um, It was challenging work, but I, again, really enjoyed it. But my health kept declining, and we couldn't figure out why my health was declining. And every time I went back to my doctor and said, I'm getting numbness in, in my right hip, he would say, stress, you're not sleeping enough say right okay so he would give me some sleeping pills and then I'd go back a couple of months later and say actually I'm I'm now getting numbness all the way down my leg and there are times when my leg gives out under me and he gave me a walking stick and said you're depressed and put me on antidepressants and it, it was this every time I went back with something new and my health getting worse and my mobility getting worse and then my cognitive function started to to decline as well to the point that when I was very young uh, I so right now I have hearing aids uh, because I have a, a hearing impairment that I've had since birth I had surgery when I was younger and kind of as I got older my hearing started to go again um, 
But because of my speech, because of my hearing uh, impairment, I had a speech impediment when I was younger as well. I had a, a stammer and a stutter, mm. and I had to have speech therapy. And now suddenly, in in my late twenties, it started to come back again for no reason, and I'm starting to stammer and stutter, and I can't think of the right word to say. And you know, th- this person who would stand in front of two, three thousand people and recite scripts, suddenly I can remember the last book that I'd read or a menu that I'd literally just put down. There would it got to the point where I couldn't remember my younger brother's name. Um and my so my husband, who I met after my accident, um, he basically became my carer as well. So at what point did you meet um Andrew? So Andrew and I have been together for ten years now. Uh so that was two thousand and twelve. Yeah. Um, and actually, so when we met, we, we, we met online. So we met on, on a website, just a kind of gay social website, not particularly a dating one. Um, but uh, we would just met as friends. He's younger than me, six years younger than me. I'd come out of a relationship with someone who was younger than me. I was like, I'm done dating younger men. That's what happened with me and Sam. <laughs> I know, it's funny, isn't and it? And then he latched on to me and I yeah. said, no, I don't want someone yeah. younger again, I'm sorry. Honestly, these younger gay men are exactly. just... Exactly, they don't like... leave you alone. <laughs> as soon as you become a daddy. <laughs> as soon as those first grey hairs start peeking through. <laughs> Salt and pepper, I want it. <laughs> they like a bit of seasoning. That's it, that's it. They need some spice in their life. Um, but no, we, we, we met kind of as friends and it was basically he recently moved down to London and didn't really know anyone in the area um, and I was just bitching about my, my dating life and the, the terrible men that I'd been going out with and it got to the point where we were going to meet uh, for a drink and we were phoning each other every night and we were talking for anything from like one to four hours and just chatting and it felt like we knew each other backwards and forwards anyway mm-hmm. um, so just before we, we were going out for this drink, he said, look, we're going out for this drink. Should we just turn it into a date? Um, and ever the romantic, I went, yeah, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> so we had our first date, and then we had our second date, um, and then six months later we were living together, and yeah. So you say six months later we had sex. <laughs> long for gays, a gay relationship. Six months. Six months. I mean, we'd be celibate in the gay world. Six months without sex. Sorry, what did you actually say? Six months later, what? We were living together. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, six months yeah. later, we were living together. Um, but the day that we had our first date, that Andrew deemed to be a date, um, I, I'd gone to my doctor that day because um, I, I was using a walking stick at that point mm. and I'd gone to see him because both of my legs were starting to have issues. Um, and he gave me crutches um, and said, you know, you'll probably need a wheelchair in kind of three or four years. Um, and I told Andrew that on our very first date and kind of like, look, this is How what you you're going How did you feel going to a date with crutches or a walking stick? As a, as a Honestly, didn't mind because <clears throat> Andrew, like I've been on a couple of dates anyway with um, with the walking stick and I had comments from other people and I... I mean, you know what I'm like. If someone says something to me, then it's two fingers up, and I don't care, and I move on. Um, but I, Andrew knew anyway, but he had, he didn't know what the doctor had told me that day. So I told him, and he said, "I, I don't 
care what's wrong with you. I like the things that are right with you. Um, and yeah, ju- that just kind of cemented it for me. Um, and he's he's been my best friend ever since, honestly. Um, I actually, I can, on hand of my heart, say I wouldn't be here today without him. Like, I actually wouldn't be here. I would be dead without him. Which is a... In terms of care or in terms of suicide are you talking like both okay honestly yeah um i i mean speaking of suicide i did actually try to commit suicide um because of this um was probably around the time that i had to stop working completely which was about a year after andrew and i met so just to recap, you've gone from um, a normal, uh, in inverted commas, um, 20-something who's got a good job, enjoying life, doing what they dreamed of, <clears throat> successful, able to design, de- define success in a um, commonsensical way. Um, that word, sensical. Commonsensical. It is now. Yeah, it, it is now. Um, so you went from that, someone basically living the dream you're doing what you wanted to do and happy and um to somebody that you you could feel your decline you could you could you could see your decline but doctors were fobbing you off um and then you were having to give up things that we all take for granted like our jobs and stuff like that and basically life was falling apart yeah and the people that that was supposed to be helping me were not helping me. So my, my GP, who now actually has been struck off for sexual misconduct, um, so it kind of shows you the level of, of my doctor. Um, so that wasn't against me, by the way. <laughs> it was a, a, a... I can't remember what it was. I think it was a flight that he was on and he, he kind of touched a, a woman inappropriately. But wow. that, that's someone okay. else's story. Um <clears throat> Every yeah, for, for for me, every time I went to see him, it was just a case of you're tired, you're stressed, you're this, you're that, and it was never really dealing with the issue of it. Um, I I had also developed um, a hole in the septum of my nose, so a bit of separation of nostrils uh-huh. from the broken nose, mm. um, and that was getting larger because of the broken nose. Uh, so I was having this kind of nose issue as well. I was having um, I. I <laughs> By the time I'd actually got to see a neurologist, um, which was, I'm trying to think now, the timeline's always really hard to, to keep track of, but this would have been 2013, I think, late 2013. I was actually happy about it because it was a neurologist that I knew. So I had childhood epilepsy mm-hmm. and I was under a, a neurologist called Dr. Mort, which I always thought funny because Mort is French for death. So Dr. Oh, death. God, yeah. Dr. Um, death. And then the, I went for my appointment. So I had this appointment in the book for like six months. And I went to the appointment and he'd retired in that time. So I had to see a new neurologist that I didn't know. And um, he was exactly the same as my doctor. It's stress. It's anxiety. You're not sleeping properly. Maybe you've got epilepsy because at this point I started to have nocturnal seizures as well. So I was going to bed and waking up completely drained and I'd like bitten the inside of my mouth and things and or Andrew would wake me up because I was fitting in my sleep 
Um, and he said, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's epilepsy and it's this and it's that and it's all of these things combined. Um, and I, I pushed and pushed against it because there's, there's kind of this thing of being lost in the system sometimes and I was definitely having that particularly with this this consultant that I was under because he was just reluctant to to give me any treatment or see me and I pushed against it until he admitted me for internal observation at North Middlesex Hospital and I was in for uh, a week and I saw the consultant for five minutes on the day that I was admitted and for ten minutes on the day that I was discharged and the whole rest of the time I was just under nurse care and occasionally saw a, a physiotherapist come in and go, how's your back doing today? And I go, it's really painful, thank you. And she'd say, great, let's do some exercise. And I go, no, because I'm in a lot of pain. Um, and I was in huge amount of pains. So at this point I was on codeine and tramadol. Um, I was on codeine and tramadol um, at quite high doses and they kept increasing those doses. Um, to the point that they said well we can't increase this anymore we're just going to have to put you on morphine which I refused because I didn't want that dependence on, on a, a, a drug like morphine mm -hmm. um, I was I was having some physiotherapy at the time um, and I was just about to start seeing a cognitive behavioural therapist as well mm -hmm. so the last day that I'm admitted into hospital, that I'm about to be discharged. Can I just ask the the CB the cognitive behavioural behavioural therapist? Mm. You wouldn't think I was one. <laughs> <laughs> um, was that your was that on off your back or was that the doctors thinking that you had? That was me requesting. Okay. That that was me saying, look, if if you're saying I'm stressed and I'm anxious, then I want I want to do something about it. Yeah. So um, they'd made this referral. But this, this consultant came around on the last day with a leaflet and said to me, um, oh, you've got functional neurological disorder. I said, well, what, what's that? He said, well, read that. And that, that was it. I was given a leaflet about this condition um, and discharged from the hospital. At this point, I'm in a wheelchair, so I'm, I'm using wheelchair most of the time. I'm able to kind of get up and walk a little bit with crutches, but most of the time I'm using a wheelchair. Um, and they, they just left me to it. And he said, the, the therapies that I'm getting at the moment, the physiotherapy and the CBT are not good enough. It needs something more specialised. They would put something into place. 18 months later, nothing had kind of come around from that. Where were um, you physically 18 months later? Still in a wheelchair. In a nicer wheelchair, because I, I was at this point kind of 100% using wheelchair because I just had no use of my legs at all. I, they wouldn't function under me uh, I would have to physically lift my legs to move them um, they couldn't bear my weight at all uh, I was falling over a lot if I tried I'd been admitted to hospital three or four times for quite serious falls where I'd hit my head or hit my back on the, the edge of the bath and things like that where were you um, mental health wise at that point at this point low <coughs> really low and by this point, I had already tried to commit suicide, um, which, I mean, I can look back at it now and, and laugh because of the situation that it was under. And I think that kind of takes away from what I was actually feeling at that point. So I, I'd gotten to the point where I, I was so low all the time. I felt like I was at the bottom of a well 
and everything around me was, was muffled and I was just shut off from everyone and the only person that could actually get through to me was Andrew and I was even starting to lose that so I even felt like I couldn't open up to him because he didn't understand what I was going through and I just thought I'm I'm a burden I'm more of a burden on everyone than a kind of a, a light in anyone's life so um, I took a bottle of pills and went to bed um, sorry it's quite hard to kind of admit I but, should um, um, just say actually um, we're quite good friends now so if I sound upset it's because I am <laughs> um, it's, um, not, it's not it's not nice to listen to is it so it can't be nice to have lived that it's not and you know me I'm, I'm not an emotional person like I don't I don't outwardly show my emotions but um, very often um, you, you you describe that feeling really well when you say um, stuck down a well and the, the, the sound's all muffled and, and no one can get through to you except for Andrew mm. um, and then you say even that was fading away yeah in what because I was just I was just in pain all the time I wasn't sleeping um, I could see that that Andrew was also getting stressed as well um, he, he'd been diagnosed with celiac at the time so he was having his own health stuff that he was trying to get on top of and I just felt like I didn't want to put more on him, so I I was keeping it all to myself, and it started just weighing me down and weighing me down, and it was just that that sinking feeling. When you wake up in the morning and you already feel like you just want to go to bed and sleep it all away, mm. it's just the worst feeling. So, yeah, I, I took a bottle of pills. I went to bed, and um, surprise... To me, I woke up the next day um, and then read the label and I'd taken a whole bottle of vitamin C pills. <laughs> <laughs> so at least you were healthy. <laughs> well, yeah. Slightly oh, yellow for a few days. Um, but, but the state that your mind must have been in to make that decision, um, I always find it... Um, Really, when you hear people say, "Oh, they've committed the suicide," they're taking the easy way out. They they're a coward. Um, you know things like that. Where they tried to commit suicide, how selfish and stuff like that. I always think, God, how selfish do you sound saying that? Yeah, and honestly, I, I said that. You know, I've I've dealt with mental health with, with my family. Um, I've got several family members who also tried to commit suicide. Um, so my mum, and actually I, I spoke to my mum earlier today and said, are you happy for me to talk about this openly? She was like, yeah, you know me, I don't care. You know, <laughs> typical Essex girl, like, yeah, tell anyone you want, I don't mind. I love um, your mum without even having met her. <laughs> what I've heard about her. Um, Hi, Sean's mum. Hi, <laughs> mum. But yeah, I mean, my my mum's tried to commit suicide uh, a few times and suffers really badly with her mental health. So mm. she's um, she's manic depressive. Um, she's been on antidepressants now for twenty two years, um, and they've attempted to take her off several times. And every time they do, she just says to them, "If you take me off, I will kill myself." Okay. Um, and she's now on antipsychotics for it as well because that's kind of the next step. Is that. Mm. There are no longer any um, antidepressants that will touch her, so they've had to up it. So it now goes into the category of antipsychotics. When you were going through all of your um, these monumental changes 
um, physically and mentally. I, I think I'm asking this question because I know you. Were you worried about the people around you and how they were coping with it? I think I was worried more about what other people were coping with. Mm. I, I was worried more about them than I was myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's generally what I'm like anyway. I always want to make sure everyone else is feeling good and that everyone else is healthy and happy yeah. above myself and, and sometimes to my detriment, which is kind of not the best thing, but it's something I've, I've become more aware of over the last uh, couple of years and I'm, I'm much better at handling Um but yeah, I, I, like I say, I find it hard to talk about, but actually it's a really important thing to talk about because mm. when he gave me that leaflet and said, this is what we're going to do and this is what you've got, um, I'd never heard of functional, neuro- functional neurological disorder. So I can, my speech is starting to go because my, I'm kind of getting emotional. Um, and when I spoke to my GP about it, he'd never heard of it before either. Uh, so functional neurological disorder used to be called conversion disorder which as well as kind of my condition um, would cover things like hysterical blindness and and things like that it covers anything that is a basically a a mental illness that causes a physical problem that they don't have the root cause for is what it used to mean yeah and it wasn't through any medical professional that I found this out, well, at least not at the start, um, I had to do a lot of research into it to find out what the condition actually is. So it's like a software problem. All of the hardware in my brain is is fine, Uh, although they did find out, and they they kind of disclosed to me later, that when they'd done uh, x-rays and scans on me, I'd bruised my frontal cortex in the accident from the impact uh, into the road. Mm. and they think that had been the trigger for me. So everyone has a trigger with, with FND. Um, but it's the wiring all goes to the wrong places. So for me, all of my action responses were going to the emotional part of my brain, not the action part of my brain. So for someone without functional neurological disorder, if you're sitting at a table and you go, oh, I'm going to reach and have a, a sip of my tea, that's an automatic response, and you just pick up your tea and you have a sip. For someone with FND, you microanalyze everything because it's going to the wrong part of the brain. So for me, it would be, right, I need to adjust my body, put my arm out, grip the cup, lift it up, assess its weight, is it too hot, bring it to my lips, prepare... And it's like every micro-action was happening, and you basically get analysis paralysis. And... For me, with with my legs, um, I'd got into such a a learned pattern from the injuries I had that this is not quite right, so I'm going to compensate this way, that that compensation became my new normal. Mm. But my brain didn't like it, so it tried to figure out another way to do it that ended up being worse. And then that became the new normal. And every time it got slightly worse, my brain just locked it in as, yeah, this is how my body works. But I, I didn't know that. So I didn't know that this is what my body was doing. And the people that could have told me didn't tell me. They, there is, so there's one clinic in London that um, actually treats functional neurological disorder. Okay. Um, and it's a multidisciplinary team at UCLH. Um, so I had my accident in 2009. was diagnosed 
2013, I think, maybe 2014, maybe later. Um, I had treatment for it in 2020. So it was just a big gap when no one did anything and I was just on this waiting list because they only see a set amount of people mm. for a few months of the year, then have a break, then it's a few people for that part. So it's a massive waiting list. So for 11 years, were you in decline for that 11 years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, I, like I say, I finally got my treatment in uh, January 2020. And to see me now, you like you personally wouldn't recognise me then. So now, to be I'm, honest, I can't believe that you've just said twenty twenty. That's only two years ago. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But two years ago, I was sixteen stone. I was completely wheelchair dependent. Um, I I couldn't properly string a sentence together because I would just stumble over my words. I would say something, then immediately forget, then say it again. I I actually thought at one point that I had early dementia, because the the. FND can it has lots of different components, mm. and the ones that I had were yeah memory, speech, and mobility, and other things. But it it can sometimes for people it can look like Parkinson's. For mm-hmm. others it can look like fibromyalgia. It can look like lots of other things, but it's not structurally that. It's something else. So it's the FND. Um, yeah. So so the the it, even the the doctors, if you hadn't been given that leaflet, they might have been looking looking at other things still yeah and that's actually i think why it took so long because they were trying to rule out what it it wasn't before they came to the conclusion of what it actually was mm. and that's pretty much how it it was then anyway and it, it's it's weird saying was then because it's not that long ago but actually fnd now is diagnosed on a diagnosis basis not on an exclusion basis so they used to exclude everything else and if they couldn't find it in like this batch of conditions then okay we think you've got functional neurological disorder and it was always we think it, it was never a definite diagnosis yeah is it is that the same as something like fibromyalgia where there's no there's no definite you seem to have the symptoms of fibromyalgia but there's no proof in it almost yeah 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 exactly mm. um and it masks it, it, it kind of masks other things and my mum mum had uh well she was treated for 16, 17, 18 years for fibromyalgia. Um, it was actually bone cancer all along. Yeah. And we um, got a, a, a no win, no fee law firm to look at her medical records and all that. And they got back to me recently and they, they basically did say that, look, there's nothing the doctors could have... I mean, yeah, there's stuff that they could have done differently, but because they it was masked and it was it was look, being looked at as something else, they kind of did all they could do. They thought, they genuinely thought it was all fibromyalgia. So, you know, I suppose in similar similar thing, that's what, you, what it reminded me of when you said the fibromyalgia, they're, they're looking at something different and they're not seeing what's behind it. Yeah. Do you have any ill feeling towards the doctors? Like, obviously the first ones that kept on it was stress. I'd imagine lots of ill feeling, but what about subsequent the doctors in that massive time period? I, I've i kind of let it go now. Um and that was partly through the, the therapy that I mm. had. But um, yes, I did. Just because I was, I went through so much and there was so much that I had to fight for myself. I mean, I, I had leg braces at one point. I had to have orthotics on my ankles so that I could stand up at all because my ankles wouldn't bear my weight. Um, 
and they they were awful. They were, I mean, I, I really feel terribly for anyone that has to wear orthotics because they are so uncomfortable. But they're there for a reason. When was this? Sort of 2018, 2019? This was when I was um, kind of using a wheelchair occasionally and using crutches. Before you had to use it permanently? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had terrible drop foot, so my, I couldn't lift my foot. My ankle, my foot would just droop, so I had no control over my ankle. So as I was stepping forward, my toes would catch and then I would fall over. Wow. Bloody hell. Ooh, um, and all this time, you're having to adapt to this new normal going on, changing all the time. And at the same time, yes, you've got Andrew. He's having to adapt to all this as well. Yeah. And, well, I suppose in a way you had each other to, to, to lean on. But it, it can't have been easy for either of you. It can't have been easy. Bloody hell, man. No, it, it really wasn't. I mean, I'm I'm kind of thankful. As I said, my, my family not the greatest family in the world in terms of you know the support is not always there um and honestly we could do a whole nother episode (laughs) (laughs) on that and my coming out and all of that and i'll happily come back and do that um but uh andrew's family on the other hand are incredibly supportive um Mm. so andrew's mum and dad uh and julie and his sister natalia they they're just wonderful people and it wasn't until actually it wasn't until we were actually married like, we would go and visit them quite often. We'd spend Christmas with them and stuff. And they would always make me feel included. But we, we got married and nothing changed. But they... I was just part of the family. And they I realised that I'd always been part of the family. And that the family are actually really loving and supportive. And I'm like, is this what family's supposed to be like? Because I've never really had this. I've never had that support just just to be me. And just to sit and read a book. Or, you know, watch TV quietly. Or play a game without an argument. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought that was a normal family thing to do. Oh, God. My family must have been like your... <laughs> we always argued playing games. <laughs> I'm not playing games. Many a war over Monopoly or go for broke. I will not play Monopoly for that reason. I, yeah, arguments are plenty. Yes, yeah. Um, but no, I... I one thing that Moz and Julie did do in that time was just tell me that it was okay to do whatever I wanted to do and that actually anything I do is fine and that they would support me. Um, so because of the damage to my hands, for like a year afterwards I didn't really do much. I couldn't play piano or guitar for about two years. Um, but I did start knitting again, which I'd learnt when I was a child. Um, so I, I started knitting to get some more dexterity back in, in my thumbs mm. um, and then was crocheting and stuff. I was like, I just enjoy creating things and, and doing something creative. And actually, my brain was functioning properly when I was engaged in something creative. Mm. Um, being at home and in a place where actually I couldn't really go out by myself because it wasn't accessible. So I was in by myself when Andrew was at work. I just turned to YouTube mainly, and uh, would be on there. There's a particular artist on YouTube called Jazza, Josiah Brooks, um, who is just a really friendly Australian guy who does art on YouTube, and it's all about having fun uh, with different art supplies. Um, and because of him, I picked up a pencil and started drawing again, something I hadn't done since I was really in my early teens. 
Um, and even when I was working as an actor, you know, I'd done some set design and stuff. It's like big scale painting and mm-hmm. designing props and things like that. But I'd never done art just for the sake of doing art because it made me happy. Um, and yeah, I just found when I was when I was drawing or painting or sculpting, my brain just freed up and I felt light and I was happy doing it. Um, and that kind of became my own self uh, self prescribed therapy was was doing art. Mm. Um, I decided a few years ago to to see if I could do how consistently I could do it. So I started doing some of the art challenges that come out every month. So uh, there's one that in May called Mermaid, where you draw a mermaid every day through May with a different prompt each day. So I did that. And then June was Kaiju, which is monsters. So I did that. Then I did one for July. What's then Kai? All... Kai? So Kaiju is like a Japanese monster. Oh, OK. And like Godzilla is a Kaiju or Mothra. OK. Um, sorry, film nerd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So yeah, I, I did these challenges and, and I actually ended up doing the, I, I did art consistently every day for 18 months um, and it just became part of my daily habit and my, almost like moving meditation for me. Was the therapy that you were receiving just CBT or did you have art therapy? Or I didn't have anything. You gave yourself art therapy? So no, well, once, the, um, once the consultant said that he was going to cancel stuff and put something else in place... He cancelled my own stuff and never put anything else in place. So I I was literally, I had nothing except painkillers and antidepressants uh, until I actually received my therapy in 2020. So everything I did, I did it for myself because I found kind of healing in it. Mm. Um, And I I kind of, I realised that when I was an actor, the thing that I liked most about it was telling stories. And even though I was telling someone else's stories, it was it was fun to do. It was fun to inhabit a character and, and portray a story. And having that kind of horror brain, I just wanted to start writing again, um, which is something that I used to do as a child, but hadn't really kind of continued into adulthood. Um, so I just used to write little stories. And um, I decided to take uh, 13 nursery rhymes, uh, and look at their origins and then twist them into horror versions and illustrate them. A lot of them are rooted in... They like, are, yeah. Like Lucy Lockett was the, the one that first sparked my imagination because Lucy Lockett is actually based on Victorian prostitutes. I don't I even know Lucy Lockett. Lucy Lockett lost her pocket. Kitty Fisher found it. There was not oh, okay. a penny in it, but a ribbon round it. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, it's a prostitute losing her purse and her money's been stolen, but her, her friend, another prostitute, finds it. Um, so that had sparked my mind, and I kind of, oh, Victorian prostitutes, or there's Jack the Ripper. And funnily enough, my last uh, TV acting job was um, Vic Reeves investigates Jack the Ripper. So I was one of the, the lead suspects, and I played Aaron Kosminski. Um, and I remember <laughs> I remember watching it, because it, it was for Sky, it was on Sky One. And um, he, he there's this section where, where Vic Reeves appears behind me as I'm holding this plaque in Victorian uh, pl- um, like prisoner's uniform with my name on it and uh, he starts describing Aaron Kosminski and Vic Reeves if, if you ever meet him he's really loud and really scary and the first time he appeared <laughs> behind me he, he started talking because I couldn't see him I jumped and then smirked at the camera and the director went cut let's go again and uh, and Vic just went you want me to poke you in the back and I said depends what you poke me with Vic <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, he did. He, he came up and he poked me in, in the back of his thumb, and then I was fine. Um, but the things that I didn't really register what he was saying, and then my nan phoned me because she'd been watching it, and she phoned me just after Vic Cruz says, and Aaron Kuzminski, who was a um, in an insane asylum, would only eat food from the gutter, was a chronic masturbator, and my nan phoned me up. Oh, I didn't know that about you. <laughs> <laughs> Did I mean, you know? I've been very <laughs> <laughs> um, So yeah, getting back to the stories, I was, I was just like, well, th- this is this is something that interests me, and it's something that I just want to do for myself. And I, I did thirteen of them, and I thought, I think there's a book here. Um, so I, I self-published it. It's called uh, Horrible Rhymes for Terrible People. Um, and I think if you read it, then you are a terrible person. But if you get any enjoyment out of it, because they are sick. Um, That's not the best way to say it, is it? <laughs> if you read this, then you're a horrible person. Go and buy it now. Buy it now. I mean, it literally says in, in, the, uh, in the opening... If you read this, you are a terrible person, um, but that's fine. So it's okay to be a terrible person, as long as you can admit it to yourself. Mm. Um, but I really, I really enjoyed the process of um, of making a book. Um, so yeah, I, I made the book, and then later I did um, a competition or kind of an art challenge, uh, a writing challenge called Nano Rimo, which stands for National Novel Writing Month, and you're supposed to write. 50,000 words in November um, and I signed up and I, I had an idea in my head for a, a vampire story and kind of a, a, a twist on the vampire story and I knew where I wanted it to go but hadn't really planned anything out so I ended up writing about 56,000 words and then I read it back afterwards and it was absolute trash it just wasn't good at all um, but it didn't put me off. I really enjoyed just sitting down every day because I had the time and go, oh, I'm going to write 2,000 words today and just write a bit of this story. Um, so I did it the following year and I, I this time I went in with, okay, well, I've got a bunch of stories that I want to write and I kind of I get ideas and I, I write them all down so I've got the, a journal of all these random thoughts and ideas that I have. Um, I was like, right, I'm, I'm going to start with this story and that's going to link to this next one and they're all going to link to be linked together and it's just going to be a book of short stories um, and the first one's like 25,000 words so it's not exactly a short story I suppose it would be a novella by itself but it's it's part of the collection so it's um, Tales from the Flesh Oracle and the mm. first story in, in it is the, the Flesh Oracle available on Amazon available on Amazon thank you <laughs> <laughs> and again self-published um, because I was like you know I've done this for myself Mm-hmm. And actually, if someone else gets enjoyment from it, fine. But this is kind of a thing for me. Um, so yeah, I was doing that. I was doing art every day, and I was like, I want to, I want to share this with other people because, as I said, I think there's there's a lot of therapy for it mm-hmm. for other people. So I started a, a YouTube channel, um, Uncle Frogface. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, named by my my lovely niece Leah, who uh, when she was very young, used to get upset about things, and I'd pull funny faces at her. And there was a particular face that I pulled that looked like a frog. So uh, because she <laughs> because the picture she... I used for this episode, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to use that now. <laughs> 
you are not using my front face for the for the picture. Um, <laughs> no, you, you can have. <laughs> Well, that's been cut out. I'm just using a picture of Nigel Farage <laughs> on front <Grumpy's>. face. God. <laughs> oh, dear. Sorry, Denise, Leah. So, yeah, you pulled the yeah. face. Um, so, Leah, um, Leah's mum speaks, is Italian uh, and speaks <clears throat> Italian, and Leah was raised speaking Italian. So, she used to call me Zia da Fatiarana, which is uh, Uncle Frogface in Italian. So, when I started, like, Zio da Fatiarana. Okay, sounds very insulting. It's, it's uncle with a face like a frog. Okay. Um, but uncle frog That's face. That's what they told yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> so when I started selling art and kind of wanted to, to do this YouTube channel, I was like, yeah, uncle frog face, that, that's it. It's something people remember and it's something stupid. And I, I kind of peg myself as a professional idiot because I am an idiot, but I'm also a professional. Um, and it works quite well, and, and people always ask me about it, and I like to, to tell that story about Leah, because it kind of shows that family connection mm -hmm. as well. Um, but I, I just started making videos of, like, this is what I'm doing. There, there's no tutorial or anything, there, there's nothing other than, I'm doing a piece of art, do you want to join me and do a piece of art of your own? And um, I've struggled with my mental health, and if you want to reach out to me and talk, then reach out to me and talk about it. And I'm very open about that. Um, so that was my my own therapy. And that's kind of what I did for myself. Um, and it was really tough to do, but it's actually been really rewarding. And even now, after I've had my treatment, it's still something that has stuck with me and something I love doing. I'm doing two YouTube videos a week. I'm trying to write the next book. Um, you know, I'm... I'm creating more and more things all the time um you're sat in front of me so obviously i know the answer to this but so where are you physically now then so physically now um i am fully mobile um i i can speak nice and clearly as you can hopefully hear sorry <laughs> i will slap you um we're, we're here in person it's not virtual i can reach and literally reach out and slap you <laughs> Ow! <laughs> <laughs> he stepped on a nail. Um, <laughs> he put the shed together himself. It's his own fault. Uh, so yeah, I, shout out to my dad and my brother who did put the shed together. <laughs> Summer house. Summer house. Sorry, Richard. Therapy. Okay. <laughs> therapy sweet. Therapy sweet. My therapy is my shed. Yes. My shed. I'm um, sorry. So you can slap people. You can. Yeah, I can slap people. Can yeah, I, I can talk. I, I, my memory is almost a hundred percent. I still have the odd day where it's not. Um, I'm not in is, pain. I don't mean this insulting because we're the same age, but is that could that just be an age thing, or is that to do with the end? No, it is. It's, yeah, the it's, it's the FND. FND. Um, yeah, it's. So it's I. <clears throat> I'm kind of acutely aware of my mental health now. Um, so I, I kind of—I suppose I should should talk about the therapy that I had because yeah. the the team that I saw were amazing, and actually there are a lot of people out there who suffer from FND um, who haven't got help and haven't got treatment. And I was going to ask: Have you reached out? Have you? Have you? Is there any support groups? Are there any? So there there are support groups on Facebook that actually, personally, I feel do more harm than good. Okay. So. One of the things about FNDs is the tie to mental health and actually mm. your perception of things. Mm -hmm. And to really get the most out of any treatment for FND, 
you have to be willing to accept that the treatment is going to work and that it's going to be of benefit to you. Um, and unfortunately, what a lot of these support groups devolve into is people saying, I feel really crap today. This is what's wrong with me. Does anyone else feel the same? And it just turns into a litany of how terrible is my life? Mm. And I'm not saying that life isn't terrible, but actually by reading how bad everyone else is doing, it reinforces how bad you are. Mm. And that is the complete opposite of what you want for the treatment to actually have any effect. So when I went for my treatment, um, I was in hospital a few days a week uh, for six weeks. And um, so I'm going to pause because of the kids in the street playing. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I should explain. <laughs> the kids next door, I think, have just decided that they're going to have a full-blown full game of football or something. If you can hear them, <laughs> that's what's going on. I might just go out and kick one of them. The ball, he means. Yes. Kick the ball. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, the, I was in hospital a few days a week for, for six weeks and it's That's a... your macabre sense of humour there, <laughs> <laughs> I nearly replied with a macabre, a sick line, but you know, You're gonna have I to have edit to remain so the professionalism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not editing any of this. <laughs> Actually, I may take something out at 31 minutes, but that's it. <laughs> If you hear a blank and a beep at 31 minutes, it was something Richard said. Um, I'm glad you didn't repeat it, because then I would have had to write down the other minute. Um, so, yeah, the, the, I was in, in the hospital uh, a few days a week for six, six weeks. and um, So it's a multidisciplinary team. So there's a, a neurosurgeon, a neuroscientist, a cognitive behavioural therapist, an occupational therapist, a speech therapist... Um, what else was there? There was someone else as well. There's all of these people trying to help you all at the same time. And this is when you got the appointment in 2020? Yeah. Okay, so the, yeah, okay. So this is 2020, starting treatment. Um, and it actually, it was, it was quite enlightening to be with people who actually know what the condition is and how to help. Because there's lots of people online who know what the condition is, mm. but don't have an answer on how to help. Mm -hmm. And then it devolves into, as I said, yeah. just complaining about uh, the things that are going wrong, which then leads to feeling even worse. Is it one of those, because it's neurological, if somebody says, for example, you're going to develop headaches in six months' time, that you will develop headaches in six months, or you're more likely not, to Not that develop. you will, but you're more likely yeah, to. Okay. Yeah, And if you're listening so to other people who more... have your condition saying, mm. oh, I've now got a tremor in my hand, which I did, like, for three years, I had tremors in my hands, and that's I, I would just draw really quickly because then you couldn't see that I had a tremor, which is why now, as an artist, I work extremely quickly mm -hmm. because I've just built that habit in. But if I was to go onto one of those forums and say, my hand tremor is really bad today and this is how it's affecting me, um, you would get someone else in a few weeks say, I've started to develop a hand tremor. Mm -hmm. What's going on? We'll start asking questions. Um, not all the time, but it's more likely to happen. Mm -hmm. So that's for, for the benefit of any doubt. That's not me saying that these things don't exist because if they're happening, they exist. Yeah. I, I understand the power of the mind and... It, one thing that I used to say to my mum is if, I, if I'm saying it might be psychological that's not me saying that it's not happening because mm -hmm. our brain controls everything yeah and, and what they've what they've discovered with functional neurological disorder is the neurological component mm -hmm. so yes you can have a neurological disorder and 
things develop because of outside influences. Mm. The, the way I like to describe it is um, like a field. So if you've got a big field in front of you, and that's like the pathway for your brain, you're stood on one side, and that's where you are, and the action that you want to do is on the other side of the field, point A and point B. Your brain is so used to doing that action that as you walk across the field, the grass gets flattened down and you create mm. a path across. Yeah. That's the neural pathway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you're, when that action gets basically interrupted by FND, it gets rerouted to a different path. So instead of going across the field, you're now going around the field. Yeah. And by doing that, you're missing your destination or you're stopping off early and it's mm-hmm. going to a different part of the brain. That's how one of my teachers explained um revising for tests like that you need to walk that pathway enough times to erode the grass away exactly so it's there forever yeah i mean architects use this in designing paths in in like <coughs> uh, urban architecture they're called desire lines mm-hmm. um and it's it's people desire to walk there and they continue walking there and it creates a path in, in the dirt and so they will just build a path there and create an actual path <laughs> so it's kind of intelligent ergonomic design our brains work exactly the same way. You keep doing an action over and over again, mm-hmm. and that is the normal action for your brain. So now by interrupting that and going a different way, mm-hmm. you're creating a new path, and your brain can't get out of that new path. But the old path is still there. It's overgrown, and the grass has started to grow back, but the path is still there. Yeah. And it, it takes someone outside, it takes an outside influence to jog you back into using that old path again. So we'd spent like the first couple of weeks, we were just talking about the condition and kind of talking about ourselves and doing the the CBT part of the therapy as well, um, which opens up a whole can of emotions and and self-deprecation and all sorts of other things and and how you're feeling about yourself. Um, And they kind of make you feel actually it's okay to be who you are and, and to feel the things that you're feeling because you're going through something that is incredibly difficult to go through. Then they start with the the physical therapy side. Um, so they they had something called an Oswestry frame. So I was sat on the edge of a bed, and they put this frame around me. It's a, a big wooden frame, and uh, they said, right, we want you to to hold onto the the railings in front of you, and stand. We don't want you to lift yourself up like I normally would. Like if I was moving from one seat to another, I'd literally put my hands down and pick myself mm. up and move myself. Uh, no, we just want you to put your hands on there and use it to support yourself so you don't fall, but use your legs and your hips and stand. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried for a good 20 minutes, and I cried because I couldn't do it. Couldn't do what they were asking me to do. Um, and it nearly broke me, and I think they saw that it nearly broke me. And the, the physiotherapist that I was with was like, okay, just take a breath. Don't worry about it, it's fine. I kind of got myself into a state and he calmed me down. And he said, right, we're gonna try again, but this time, whilst you're doing it, can you just look around and count all of the red things in the room for me? So I was, yeah, okay. Um, and I, I started counting the red things in the room and I got to about the eighth thing and then realized that I was standing. And I'd done it involuntarily, like my brain had gone from you need to stand so let's move that foot and that foot and shift your weight and all of these micro actions to my brain's thinking about something else but it also wants to stand and it Mm. just did the action it used those old pathways again and that was the that was the 
the point of no return for me. That was the point I was like, I can do this. I can turn things around. I suppose, um, is there an element of once you know that the physical ability is there, yeah, then you can build on that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. By the end of the treatment, so by the end of the six weeks, they had me on a treadmill with two walking poles um, and I was able to walk a hundred steps. Um, which, I mean, very slow and shuffly and not able to pick my legs up properly, but I was actually able to walk a hundred steps with two poles. And I'm presumably over these six weeks as your physical health is getting better, your mental health? Yes, mental health definitely. Um, and are you, I mean, are you starting to think, hang well. on, I'm getting my life back here. Honestly, you've kind of been to hell and back. So I said to they they when we first started, they said, what are your targets? And I said... Well, I'd love to be able to do a park run because Andrew and I used to, um, we were run directors for a park run. I used to go and, and do it in my wheelchair. I'd, I'd do 5K in my wheelchair or I'd volunteer or I'd, or I'd run the park run. I'd say I'd like to be able to do a park run on my feet. Um, but I know that's probably not a possibility. I said I'd also like to, to climb a mountain, but I know that's not going to happen. And um, the, the, the neuroscientist that I saw on that first appointment said... We've had people come here who can barely talk and can barely walk, go on and learn to tango. So I'm sure you'll be able to do that. Um, actually, when I finished the treatment, Andrew and I used to go out and we, we had to continue the therapy at home. Mm-hmm. So we would go out each day to our local park. I'd wheel myself there. Then I had two kind of hiking poles. I'd get up and I'd walk a little bit with the poles. And then until I couldn't do any more, and then I'd get back in the wheelchair and we'd go home. What was it stopping you doing? Was it the muscle that had worn away? Yeah, basically, like, yeah. that, atrophy. your brain function was coming back and everything yeah. that was controlling your legs. Yeah. It was just the, the fact that you hadn't used them for so long. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I started going from kind of shuffling along to being able to lift my feet and actually take proper steps. Uh, and then I was going from doing, you know, 10 yards to 100 yards. <laughs> Um, and, um, and then then I could do half a lap of the park and then I could do a lap of the park and then nine months later we were able to go out and not take the chair with us and go for a walk around our park um, I do know why um, like knowing you and Andrew I can just imagine how you must have both been feeling at that point as things were getting better sorry there's actually so <laughs> the hope in both of you must have been gorgeous, like internally. I've got a video um, on my phone somewhere. Uh, so I finished the treatment in February. Um, Andrew turned thirty that January because oh, our birthdays. I know our, our birthdays are only five days apart. Um, so obviously I turned thirty just after him. Um, <laughs> Six year age gap lesson. Yeah. Um, for, no, for for his birthday, Andrew and I have been to Disneyland Paris nearly every year that we've been together, bar last year because of COVID. Mm. But just after I finished my treatment in February, we we actually went to Disneyland Paris in March for Andrew's 30th birthday mm. with his mum and dad and sister. And it was the first time they'd had like a proper family holiday in ages. Yeah. And we had told them that I was um, kind of starting to, to walk again. I hadn't really kind of gone into the details of how much I could do. And the first day we we rolled into Disneyland Paris, we went past the bandstand and 
Andrew got my poles out for me and I walked down Main Street um, and Andrew's mum was behind me videoing me the whole way and I got to in front of the castle and I think we were all absolutely in floods of tears because it was this the whole, time, <laughs> the whole time we'd been together I'd never been able to walk down Main Street by myself um, and here I was able to do it for the first time and it it yeah, it was just this. Sorry, need tissue for myself. I, 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 I went for the tissue first. I thought you would need the tissue. I went first. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, since then that I've just wanted to push myself all the time, and I've just wanted to to do more and and go further. In that September afterwards, I decided I wanted to go back to work. So I uh, applied at a tuition centre, Maths and English tuition, who Andrew was working for as well, uh, in head office. So I applied to be an online tutor. Um, within a few months, I was one of their top tutors and had kind of a team under me that I was in control of. Andrew and I, now that my mobility was back, we were able to start looking at moving outside of London, which is something we'd wanted to do for a long time so that we could start looking at adopting and starting a family. And uh, we we moved to to North Wales, um, which I never thought we'd do. But we we now live in a a lovely little village, or the same village as you, um, in, in North Wales. <laughs> <laughs> There's no getting rid of me now. Um, uh, we we've joined the the um, Chester's LGBT choir. Um, I I was offered management position within the company at Centre in Chester, which I'm still doing now, um, and it's. I, I'm just, I feel like I'm almost back to myself. Um, I say almost back to myself because there's there's that kind of performative part of my life that I, even though I do YouTube, it's still for me quite a solitary thing because I'm doing it by myself. Uh-huh. And I'm doing it for myself. I share it with everyone, but really I'm doing it for myself, for therapy for myself. Mm. Um, I miss being on stage and I miss being in front of a camera and I miss kind of that that performance part of my life but I did I wrote a monologue for um, a project in Chester uh, kind of celebrating some of the history of Chester and then a couple of months ago performed it in Chester on the streets uh, dressed as a, an Anglo-Saxon that's when I walked straight past you and <laughs> didn't did. even see you I saw Andrew on side of the road and hey Andrew and carried on walking and you were doing your monologue on the I other side of the road with a sword and, <laughs> and I literally walked straight past you so I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. To be fair, I'd only just met you both. <laughs> and I just looked at Andrew and said, hi, Andrew, Andrew was with his mum and dad, I think. Yes, and I'd, he was. I'd, yeah. I'd never met them, but I kind of said hello to them in passing. And then I just walked off. I totally missed your monologue. <laughs> I totally missed you. I didn't even see you there. I know. I know. That was a busy day because we'd also been performing with Proud You had. I'd come well, to see choir, you in the so choir. Yeah. It was the choir that I used to be in as well. So yeah. um, it was, it's been nice to sort of revisit that part of my life and go and see the choir and, and all those... Uh, some of those lovely people. <laughs> well, and then obviously, you know, we both have to blame Patsy for introducing us. So, yes, yeah. we have to blame Patsy. Shout out to Patsy. You're the <laughs> next victim. <laughs> no, um, so you have been, um, it, to anyone else's mind listening to this, I would imagine that they would think that you've been to Helen back because that's how it kind of sounds. You, you went from this 
like I said earlier, this vibrant life where you were doing all these things, enjoying life, doing the things that you wanted to do, to 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 nothing to a shell really. Yeah. Where you you couldn't even move, you couldn't even talk, and then you're out the other side now. Um, but all that way, you've had someone holding your hand. I have, I have, and he's he's made me accountable for myself as well. Um, so he knows as well as I do that if if my hen- mental health starts to slide now then it can actually have proper physical effects on me you know those the condition that i have is never going to go away mm-hmm. i'm always going to have that and i have to manage that every day mm. and there are days where i get <clears throat> so stressed that suddenly my speech goes or suddenly i, I forget something really important and mm-hmm. then i kind of i'm kicking myself afterwards but i just go through the steps that i went through in therapy and i, I just kind of recognize that yes it's a thing that has happened it's fine it's not the new normal it's not a thing that's going to stay with me it's just a temporary blip and it's going to pass and I just assess why has that happened what is the thing that's causing that stress for me what is the thing that's causing that anxiety and deal with the the problem itself not the consequences of the problem Mm. because all of the conditions the things that come afterwards they're consequences of the problem when people talk about having stress and anxiety they talk about the the physical thing that they are going through at that time and it's really hard to try to get people to understand that actually yes all of that is perfectly valid and it's fine to feel those things what's not fine is the reason that you're feeling that in the first place you have to kind of tackle the issue itself not the thing that it's left you with mm-hmm. um, amen to that Um, your husband describes you as Mr. Modest (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mr. Modest but in a you know facetious way Um, how confident really are you in yourself Um, not as confident as I used to be I'm very good at before 2009 yes okay yeah I'm very good at putting on the mask of confidence. Yeah, I, 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 I picked that up without without answering back to Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Not that Andrew's this big ogre or anything. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, that's that's your business. But I, yeah. I think I picked that up that a lot of it is 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 bravado and and facade and um, although you have so many reasons to be confident and to be, um, you know. Well, yeah, confident in what you do. Your artwork is amazing. Your voice is beautiful. Honestly, it's like honey. Um, your piano playing is just out of this world. Um, Keep the compliments so, coming. I'm well, liking. That's something that you. Should, that, I mean, it, you know, we, we will finish in a second. But something um, that I I don't think your mum is saying is I remember being at your house a couple of weeks ago and you'd had a particularly bad day, so you yeah. locked yourself away playing the piano and yeah. singing loudly and to anyone else not anyone else to people that that don't get their kicks or their mental health relief or anything for music they might not have got that but it just seems like the most natural thing and I was sat there listening to you not singing angry songs just singing songs and that that helps you yeah 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 I think <clears throat> that's what I was saying that the kind of creativity and kind of self-expression mm. i think that's what it is really it's self-expression mm-hmm. is it's being who you really are i think we're we all we're all guilty of this we're all guilty of having this p- 
persona that we put out to the rest of the world that isn't necessarily who we really are. We're yeah. all a completely different person on the inside. Oh, and we all have different masks for different people. Whether yeah. we, you know, whether we admit it or not, we, we, we kind of do, because we probably learn it from an early age. We're different in front of our parents than we are with our teachers and on our friends. Yeah. And, and so I suppose we learn from a different age to be slightly different to other people. It doesn't mean we're not being real, it's just different parts of us. But I think the message I, I always try to give out, particularly in my YouTube channel where I'm talking about kind of mental health and, and creativity, Actually, one of my favourite videos on there is disability and creativity and talking about kind of briefly um, my experience. That's the one where you make everyone cry. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but briefly talking about my experiences is the, the, the whole message I'm trying to get across is it's okay to just be yourself. And actually being yourself is one of the hardest things to do, like to authentically be yourself with another human being. Mm. is one of the hardest things to do. We naturally do that with the people that we love and that we are in love with. I think I'm more myself with Andrew than with any other person in the world, even my family. Mm. Um, and that's why Andrew knows kind of the weirdness of my brain as well, because he knows exactly what makes me tick and exactly what gets to me and, and just kind of all of my foibles. Um, but I've... I've allowed that and that wasn't anything special anyone can do that you can allow yourself to be open with absolutely anyone it takes courage but actually by doing that you're doing your mental health a massive service because mm. people are actually able to see you for who you are yeah. and help you in a way that's actually going to help you I think that's a brilliant place to end it um Thank you so much. Thank you. For being my first non-virtual guest. So, what's the book called on Amazon? Uh, so it is Horrible Rhymes for Terrible People. But you have to be a horrible person but to read But you have to be that. a, a terrible yeah. person to read it. Uh, and there's Tales from the Flesh Oracle. Both are available on Amazon. Um, what's your name again on YouTube, as if they've forgotten? <laughs> <laughs> so across all social media, Twitter, Instagram, <laughs> YouTube, is at Uncle Frogface. No, honestly, if anyone ever wants to reach out to me and come kind of talk about anything mental health or creativity, then my door is always open. Feel free to message me on Twitter or Instagram or leave a comment on a YouTube video and I'll always reach out to you. And I will put a link to that on my Twitter similarly. Similarly? Similarly. Similarly. Celiac. If you'd like to reach out to me, then you know it's uh, at Richard Sefton 3 um, If it's Crisis Point, the Samaritans 116123 I nearly forgot that then um, thank you for joining us today and I hope that you have um, got something from this conversation I know I have um, and Sean you've been an amazing guest so thank you very much Uncle Frogface thank you <laughs> Uncle Frogface <laughs> I love it <laughs>